recently reading in Mark's gospel, and I came to the story of the paralytic who was lowered down through the roof so he could meet Jesus. And as the story goes, this man ends up healed physically, and then the whole point of the story, more importantly, he was healed spiritually. Uh, many of you know that J.C. Ryle, the 19th century British pastor, is one of my favorite authors, and he wrote these thought-provoking words about this scene. He says, Who can doubt that to the end of his days this man would thank God for this palsy? Without it, he might probably have lived and died in ignorance and never seen Christ at all. That palsy was indeed a blessing. Who can tell? But it was the beginning of eternal life to a sinner. Bold words, aren't they? Which of us would think of such a, a debilitating symbol in such hopeful words? Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for, for health. It's certainly no bad thing to ask the Lord to give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, where is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and sinner and profane the name of my God. It's not a wrong prayer, as we find there in Proverbs 3. But when we only want the good, easy life, when we only want to have our desires met, to have everything go perfectly and smooth, when we only want, as we see in so many Disney films, you know, the, the, the birds and the animals are so happy and it's sunny and it's 75, when that's the only thing that we want, well then really, we are missing out. In fact, more than missing out, if that's all that we want, then what we're really saying is that we desire for the words of James chapter 1 to be untrue. Because James writes, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Brothers and sisters, be careful what you want in life. No hardship at all leaves you with a weak faith and prevents you from having the joy of the learning to rely on and to trust in Jesus Christ. Now, you might rightly say at this point, as I know I would if our situations were reversed, you know, Pastor, that sounds good and all, but you don't know my life. I've had more than my fair share of trials, and you might be right. In this sin-filled world, your life might be far more difficult even and certainly than you or I would have imagined. But I want to point out, as we'll see today, that Joseph's life was every bit as hard as yours or mine. Hated by his brothers without reason. Thrown into a pit. Sold into slavery. Now falsely accused. Put into an Egyptian prison. Joseph, of all people, 
would seem to have a claim. He would seem to have a, a reason to be angry and bitter with God. Who could blame him? And yet that's not how he sees the world. He is not angry nor bitter. And that makes all the difference. So I want us to see this next part of the story together in Genesis chapter 40. Not just so that we can keep going in our Genesis series. But no, instead it's so that we can learn how Jesus uses even hardship for the good of his people. And how that's not just some sort of slogan or something we're supposed to say, yeah, okay. But I want us to see it in Joseph's life. I won't read the entire story today. You can read ahead if if you're one of those who just needs to see how it ends. But this is yet one more entry where God is still on his throne. He is still in control. And he has not forgotten Joseph. Genesis chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended to them. He continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Anyway, tell them to me. God is still near. Joseph is still in prison. There has been no miraculous rescue. In fact, it might be natural to think that Joseph has been left to rot by the Lord that he trusts. Nothing could be further from the truth than that. Because instead, one day, Joseph gets uh, two new cellmates. It turns out that the king's cupbearer and his baker had both offended Pharaoh. Uh, Maybe they didn't laugh at the right time. Maybe the wine was a bit off. The the cake was cooked all the way through. And the king said that he would kick them the man of cakes. Whatever the case, these two traded for the king's displeasure by being thrown into prison. The same prison where Joseph was kept. The same prison where Joseph had been put in charge of all the other prisoners. Because of how steadfast and faithful he serves, even in chains. Next, we're told that these two servants had dreams. Does that perk your ears up a little bit? Dreams what got Joseph in trouble in the first place? Telling his brothers that they'd bow down to him someday? That one's true. Yet 
as we're going to see later in his life, those dreams were not just, oh, the sorts of random dreams maybe that you or I might have, but instead they were prophecies given by God. So who better then to have as a son than Joseph? seems to know all about how to do it. I want you to make sure you don't miss the most important reality in these first four verses. Who interprets dreams? Not some best-selling book, not some wise guru, not someone on social media, not even Joseph himself. Instead, We hear from him, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me. Well, interesting. Joseph in jail still trusts God. There are two truths here that you and I need to hear and embrace from that very simple phrase. And the first is this. It's that God, the God described here in the scriptures, is in charge of all mentioned that several times already in Joseph's story. We'll see it again in the future. But I want you to see it here as well. Because if God isn't in control, then Joseph has no hope at all. He's a foreigner. He's been accused of messing with Potiphar's wife, a a high official in the kingdom. There is no way Joseph is going to get out of this on his own. And it's going to take special kindness, isn't it? If God is not in control, then your prayers don't matter, right? Why pray? God can't do anything about it. But if he is in control, then there is every and all hope. His promises can be trusted. The hard life that Joseph has endured hasn't changed his view of God. That's the remarkable part, though. Joseph hasn't had some sort of crisis of faith. He he apparently didn't read the the right articles in psychology today telling him, oh, you should give up on God. That was clearly just a figment of your mind. Remarkably, Joseph still looks to the Lord. Dear church, when you are tempted and tried, our world would say that's the time to give up. But that's completely wrong. It's the other way around. That's the time to dig deep into the word. That's the time to really trust him and say, okay, Lord, you've promised, I'm trusting you. Secondly, Joseph still believes that he's useful to God. Thrown in prison, taken from his people, far from his family. Joseph believes that he still has a purpose. The Lord interprets dreams, and yet Joseph clearly believes that God's going to use him to speak those interpretations to these dear servants of God. We need to see this because this truth attacks the other error that we might make during hard times. If I was going to say it in kind of simple Sunday school words, it would be deep down, some of us are afraid that God doesn't really like us. Right? You might have different words, but isn't that what we fear at times? Isn't that the basis 
insecurity that, that God's judging us, that he's against us? Praise him that nothing could be less true. We see it in the scriptures. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Romans 8, 28. Not just some things. Not, not well, well, maybe this, and I can see how that's good, but not that. God wants to for that one. No, all things. We read that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? The God that we serve, the only God, the one true God, is not sitting up in heaven, as the cartoons show, just looking to, to zap you, to trip you up. That is not the Christian God. chapter 8, Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? The God of the universe who is for us and that erases every foe who stands against you. Friend, it's not that God doesn't judge. He does, and rightly so. But instead, it's that if you are a Christian, then God has placed your judgment on Jesus. Jesus has paid the price. You need not fear whatever the Lord is bringing you through. You can trust him. He's not against you. The example of Joseph calls us to trust that he does have plans. Plans for you. Plans for me. And so we must trust him as we move forward in life, faithful to what he chooses. Say, well, I, I don't understand. I, I, if only I knew and I could figure it out. Trust him. God knows. He knows exactly what's going to happen and why and how and in what time. He will not let you be questioned anything. Will you trust him? Of course, that's easy to say. Perhaps the question we should be asking is, how will you and I grow to have a clear heart in this story? And it's not just that we need to know the right answer. It's how will you do this in your life? Because it's not going to happen on its own. It's not going to happen automatically. No one drifts into faithfulness, just like no one drifts into Christian maturity. It doesn't just happen. But any suggestion I could make, I think one of the best would be simply this. pray, to go to the Lord and ask Him to transform your, your thinking and your heart, that you would give up on believing that you have to know everything, understand everything, and instead embrace God as being worthy of all things. I mean, isn't that the very point that so many of us struggle with, is going to the Lord in prayer? You ever wondered why? I mean, I know we all have some sort of reason. I don't know yours. You know, mine, I usually try to make sound really practical and spiritual. Well, I'm too busy doing other things, and so I just kind of go to prayer and deal with that. Maybe. Then again, maybe it's because to pray is to trust. It's a lot easier not to pray 
still using Joseph. Joseph still trusts the Lord. So what's going to become of these dreams and these miracles? Well, let's keep reading the story. Look at verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when he was cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. of these servants has a different dream. The first, the cupbearer, will end up being restored to Pharaoh's court. At the end of that dream, don't miss Joseph's request. Right? He, he interprets the cupbearer's dream, and by the way, I, I want you to notice what wise guru or, or author of books in Barnes and Noble would somehow get these details from branches and grapes. Only God Joseph interprets the cupbearer's dream, and he hopes that this servant then will use his, his restored power and authority to somehow get Joseph free. I mean, that's reasonable, isn't it? Trusting God doesn't simply mean sitting back and being passive. That might be the, the other side of the coin. We, we struggle to trust, and then when we think we're trusting, we struggle with just, well, maybe I, I just need to not do anything. It's not what we're seeing here. Joseph isn't content to just sit in prison, but instead he's looking for a way out. And he's trusting that, that if he does get out, his release would be a part of God's plan as well. It gives us a fruitful insight. Perhaps you've asked yourself this question, maybe more than once. What is God's will? 
What is God's will for me? What does he want me to do? It's not necessarily a bad question, but usually how we answer it says more about us than about God. Because usually we shoehorn the answer into our own categories. Okay, God, I, I, I prayed. And, and, and now, and then we get to, to the miraculous response. And so, uh, that's great. I got up and, you know, in my email, I sent them to National Geographic about this country around the globe. Maybe that's it. Maybe I should go. life may at times seem random to us, it's ever random to God. There is a plan. What we normally see in the Bible is not that God gives us some sort of miraculous sign or a written out map to follow, but instead the call is to trust the Lord. It's to act on the things that every Christian is clearly called to do and to be and to look for ways to faithfully live that in your own circumstances. What is God's will for your life? I assure you of this, it is to be in your presence. That's going to look different in your life than mine. There'll be some similarity. There'll be some things viewed in your own circumstances, your life, the people you know, your, your job, your family, where it's going to look different. All those unique ways that he is faithfully using you. Not just to be and make disciples. Obviously, I could fill that in for the whole rest of our time. Right? What's God's will? Well, we're told. Told. Trust the Lord. Do what is good. He'll reveal anything else you need to know. This is God's will for your life. And sometimes you will end up doing or saying isn't going to be easy. It couldn't have been for Joseph. I mean, after all, he delivered great news to the cupbearer, but that just means to the baker. Uh, the second dream is just as bad as the first one was good. Uh, rather than being restored, the baker will die on account of the restoration. Two dreams, two very different destinies. Joseph has done all that could be asked of him. He's, he's hoping that the Lord will use these circumstances to somehow get him released. And how's that going to turn out? Let's read these last few verses in the chapter, starting in verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup into his hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to him. And yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. exactly as Joseph said it would. The, the cupbearer is restored. The baker is killed. And most crucially, what about Joseph himself? Would he be remembered? No. No, he wouldn't. Not yet. Sometimes, friends, faithfulness doesn't mean 
that everything is going to go well. Be aware of the circumstances. I'm not sure quite why that is so woven into the fabric of our American Christianity. It is not found in the Bible. Faithfulness does not guarantee you an easy life. Even genuine service to the Lord does not guarantee easy work here in life. Oh, yes, thank you. And so many people who have huge followings, they publish books, they fly around the world, they have massive churches, they would say, no, that's wrong. You just do your bit. God will bless you. You sow your seed. I can say that because I haven't forgotten what Jesus himself he never sinned, and guess who died the death of the worst of sinners? In fact, Jesus has promised that all who follow him will have to endure in the same pattern that he himself endured. So why would we expect any different? Friends, the call to faith is a call to suffer in the world's eyes. But here's the crucial difference. Christians aren't just trying to be martyrs. No. Instead, the difference is that the suffering in this case is worth it. Matthew chapter 10 states it better than I ever could. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake Jesus has given his life so that you and I could have real, true, everlasting life. Right? This is the good news of the gospel. And my questions for you then are two. And here's the first. Do you trust Jesus as your Savior? Ask yourself that question. Ask it slowly. I know it might be tempting to say, well, yeah, okay, yeah, of course I do. Trust him even when life doesn't go according to plan. Are you following him as a disciple? Now you can know the answer to that by asking whether you called on the name of the Lord when you called for Savior. Are your actions showing, however imperfectly, are they showing that he is your Lord? Are you so then take time for it? Jesus is for you, he's not against you. And if not, then the invitation is wide open. Trust him. Are you really following? Why wait? Why delay? That's first. Here's second. What will it take for us as Christians and for we as a as a congregation to have genuine To not simply look like everyone else in the world with perhaps a bit better morals, but rather to look like followers of Jesus. Dream with me, imagine with me for a second. What will that look like? It will look like losing our life in this world. If not physically, then certainly dying to the things that this world holds dear. Money, power, fame. It will look a lot more like 
Joseph. Speaking God's words, often in costly ways, may not be prison, but it sure could be the people in the break room. May not be outright physical persecution, but it sure might be the person in the locker next to you. And they act harshly. But this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like trusting him in his suffering, continuing to tell others of the God who we serve and relying on him to work in us and through us. None of that's going to be easy. We'll need each other for strength and courage. And so I want to close with a very practical way to go on this. I've already said it's your prayer life. And I can probably answer for almost everyone here as a little bit of a there's someone here in this room that you could remind today of how you will pray for them? Is there someone here in this room that you can pray that they would stand firmly in the faith this week? Not in their own strength, but in Christ's. You know, maybe no one comes to mind. And if so, if that's the case, then look around. There's probably someone here you don't Maybe someone here you do know and you haven't talked with them in a while. Look around. Introduce yourself if you need to. Ask how you can be praying for faithfulness in the week ahead. We pray to the Lord and we pray for each other. I am confident that when we do this, not as a checklist, not as a, there's one more thing to do, but when we do this out of genuine desperate reliance on our God who hears prayers, then that we will have the kind of hope we have that we need. If we follow Jesus together. That's what we're going to see from Joseph, ultimately. It's ironic, isn't it? We end the chapter with Joseph being forgotten by seemingly, at least in the world's eyes, the one person who could help him we're going to see in the very next chapter that the one person who matters is the one who remembers him. Not Pharaoh, not any rich influencer, but God himself. He is God, and he is our hope today. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is so easy for us to forget you satisfied and have joy in you is if we learn to trust your vision, your plans, more than our own. And that's not going to happen by us just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Uh, a faith in the pattern of, uh, of Joseph isn't just simply going to occur by us going through the right motions or the right practices or doing the right things. 
this is work that only you can do. Only you know each of our own sorrows, each of our own weak places. Only you know the things that we struggle with. And only you know what it looks like to grow in the light you chose. And so, Father, I pray and we pray, would you meet us we have the right answers or the right things or practices, but because we would have such a big picture of who you are and your character and what you do and what you promise, that it would so overwhelm and define our identity so that doubt would not drive us, hurts and pains would not disable us. Hardships and trials would not destroy us. You would let us see the treasure of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would be vessels and displays of what he has done.